and welcome to Knowing Nature. I'm your host, Victor. In this podcast, I speak with other environmental educators about their experiences, practice, and perspectives on helping people connect with the natural world. In this episode, I'm joined by Lorna Fox, and we're going to be talking about how we can know if what we're doing is actually working. The discussion today is informed by three pieces of work. First, a small study which provides some context on what evaluation looks like in environmental education within the UK. Then, a study which highlights the differences in results between educator observations and using a more systematic method. Finally, Practitioner's Guide to Assessing Connection to Nature, which is a really helpful document which summarizes a few methods uh, for measuring nature connectedness. Before we jump into the discussion, a quick summary of the research. So the first paper is called Evaluation or Just Data Collection, an Exploration of the Evaluation Practice of Selected UK Environmental Educators. And this is by uh, Sarah Elizabeth West at the University of York. And this was published back in 2015 in the Journal of Environmental Education. This small study in part set out to characterize how environmental educators are evaluating their programs. Dr. West gathered a convenient sample of environmental educators from across the UK, and these educators were from organizations of various sizes, including a few research institutions and national organizations, but most of the participants were from more local or regional organizations. Participants were given a questionnaire, and a small number also took part in discussion groups. Dr. West found that most educators reported doing some form of evaluation at least weekly. Most frequently, the goals of evaluation were to improve quality, report to funders, see if work meets the needs of the participants, and to see if they were actually achieving project goals. Although many environmental educators report that they are evaluating regularly, Dr. West found that This is mainly through monitoring numbers of participants or assessing enjoyment through observations of participants during the lessons. In addition, Dr. West points out that professional evaluators or researchers probably would not consider many of the methods used for data collection appropriate for research. The most frequently used methods were reported to be questionnaires and feedback forms, although no one mentioned using these methods in a pre- and post-test design. Other methods frequently reported included games, informal discussions, and letters from participants that were received afterwards. But she also acknowledges that more robust methods used for collecting data and longer-term evaluations are often impractical for environmental educators to conduct themselves, and so she offers a few suggestions for how educators might uh, develop more uh, relationships with researchers. The second article is titled, Does Student Enthusiasm Equal Learning? The Mismatch Between Observed and Self-Reported Student Engagement and Environmental Literacy Outcomes in a Residential Setting. And this paper is by Drs. Troy Frenzlia and Dr. Mark Stern and Professor Robert Powell. And this was published in the Journal of Environmental Education in 2020. These researchers observed 80 lessons and 17 educators. They also administered immediate post-experience surveys measuring the students' self-reported levels of engagement and environmental literacy outcomes. 
they found that only self-reported student engagement was significantly associated with more positive outcomes. And they concluded that observations of engaged or enthusiastic participants may not necessarily be indicative of achieving desired learning outcomes. This reinforces the importance of systematic evaluation over practitioner observations for gauging participant learning. Finally, there's the resource Practitioner Guide for Assessing Connection to Nature, and this is written by Gabby Salazar, Kristen Kunkel, and Martha Monroe. This resource describes 11 methods used by environmental education researchers to measure connection to nature, or the way people identify with predominantly natural landscapes and the relationships they form with the elements within those environments. This connection to nature is important because there's an ever-increasing body of work that gives us evidence that connecting to nature supports human health and well-being, it inspires creativity, and fosters values that can lead to a commitment to protect nature and to keep natural systems healthy. With me to discuss these papers today is Lorna Fox, Head of Engagement and Learning for the Gloucestershire Wildlife Trust. Welcome back to the show, Lorna. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's it's a pleasure to have you back. So we're talking about evaluation of programs, and I thought you'd be a great one to have on the show for this because you have quite broad experience with a, a range of different environmental uh, organizations within the UK. And so my, my first question for you is whether the characterization of evaluation in environment education, does that line up with your experience in the sector? I hesitate to give an answer here because I want to be really fair on the sector. But my immediate response, I suppose, in truth, is no. Um in that the three papers um, or information pieces that you're talking about, Victor, they are really helpful. Um, But I think often um, those that are carrying out the evaluations are those on the ground delivering. And what can happen is where you're delivering the experience that connection to nature, that environment education, learning in, for and about nature, you can be concentrating on that. So you're really at the coalface and concentrating on the quality of your delivery and the evaluation then is an added extra. It's an added luxury in what is quite possibly a short time of engaging with people in the natural environment. And so I think, reflecting on all of these papers, the luxury of that evaluation doesn't always happen. And it certainly doesn't happen um, on a consistent basis in depth. But I think quite a few people are realising the connection to nature is absolutely vital to us then moving people or supporting people in pro-environmental behaviour. And we can't say that we are connecting more people to nature if we're not assessing whether we are identifying the gaps and actually getting people to the right place to be connected to nature, to then move people or support people to more pro-environmental behaviour. So that's a very long answer 
for what in short is, I think people are trying really hard. I think often on the ground, which is where the evaluation needs to happen, the capacity isn't always there or carving the capacity for evaluation isn't always there. And therefore, I think the luxury of really robust, strong evaluation doesn't always happen. Yeah, I think that's that's certainly very fair, and I think that that's um, in my my summary of Dr. West's paper didn't include that. She does point out that the time that we are we have with the kids is really limited, and it's really mm-hmm. difficult to do any in depth evaluation in that, particularly things like really long term assessments. That's just really unfeasible. Like the environmental education sector is is so tight for resources as it is, it's not reasonable to expect a lot of these organizations to be able to carry out a longitudinal study to see like how much has their experience impacted their actions or their values later on in life. There's just not the resources to do that. So I think there definitely needs to be an acknowledgement that that is a constraint. Absolutely. I think we can be guilty of, and it's very understandable Assessing projects, and you mentioned it at the beginning, assessing projects in order to feed back to funders um, or assessing projects within their lifetime, which might be a year, it might be two years, it might be three years. And those reports go back to funders um, and we might share those reports um, within the organisation or within the sector, but they aren't longitudinal studies and they can often be very specific to something quite niche within that project that needs to evidence that that project worked or needs to evidence that that project endeavoured to work and these were the gaps within that project. And I've recognised that, for example, at Gloucester Wildlife Trust, that where we are project bound, we're reporting against projects, then we're reporting assessing and evaluating against our business plan but actually stepping back and evaluating against what our higher level endeavors are and our higher level endeavor is to move towards nature's recovery and therefore with people it's to connect more people to nature and as the University of Derby says it needs to be over 70 percent population across the UK connected to nature in order to move towards this pro-environmental behaviour tipping point where the pro-environmental behaviour becomes what more people do than not doing. And in order to carry out evaluation that's about that higher level endeavour, you need to step back from those individual project reports, your business plan, business case that may be yearly, and you need to say, okay, what are our endeavours over the next five years or even the next 10 years? And really look kind of strategically. And this is what I've done at Gloucester Wildlife Trust, say, right, our two core things are nature connection leading to pro-environmental behaviour. And so we've been setting up an evaluation tool that looks at that longer term picture, but collects that data on a monthly basis so that after five years, we're going to be able to step back and say, we didn't rely on an external evaluator. 
we didn't rely on project funding. We carried on doing this data collection in the background over a five-year period, and those results can tell us X, Y, and Z. So I think kind of trying to crack that is quite important in the sector. In a lot of cases, we, we may not have sat down to take that really strategic look that you've been talking about. We've kind of been really focused on, um, at least in the education portion of the environment sector, focused on delivering like an experience. And we haven't quite sat back now to look at, you know, okay, the experience that we are providing now, what is that? What do we actually want it to provide? How can we get the, that information out of it? Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because if you're from a teaching background, and I am, um, then you're really used to carrying out evaluation. You you are obliged to carry out evaluation on a daily basis. So you're used to integrating that into what you're doing and adapting it according to those learners and using well-known models. It's part of your practice. And in the environmental education sector, you may have come from both a teaching background and a science background. Or you may, like myself, I've come from a teaching and a social science background. Because you're so um, reflecting on, I mean, this is kind of talking from personal experience, you're so excited about being in the sector and being in the environmental sector and so excited about getting people connected to nature that you almost forget to integrate that evaluation into what you do. Yeah, or there's just the time pressures that kind of prevent because there's a big difference between having a class all day for an entire year. You can do very different things it's a luxury in a lot of places to have even a half day session, you know, in a lot of, especially larger organizations, the sessions are going to be more on the order of an hour. And so to meet the kids for the first time to deliver an experience to them and to also do like a really systematic type evaluation is, is really tight. And, and perhaps again, really impractical to, to expect or unfeasible to expect. And you've got the pressure of if there's an element of income generation about what you're doing, you've got that one hour with a class or maybe the luxury of an hour and a half and it's an income generation as well as a nature connection exercise for the organisation, um, then justifying spending what could potentially be a half hour on evaluation if you're doing more in depth or even 15 minutes You've got your pre-test and then your post-test, you know, are you getting them from A to B during that one and a half hours? You spend 10 minutes beginning, 10 minutes the end. That's quite a lot of time to take up when a class or school may have spent some good money on that session. So justifying it is a challenge as well as creating the capacity in the time and space to carry it out, making sure it's systematic and then I think often our experiences that we provide are a one-off situation unless they're within a project and then they tend to be maybe a bit longer term, for example, six to eight weeks. And then the reporting goes back to the fund and becomes quite project specific. So that general piece, it often is a one-off visit, a one-off situation 
And how do you assess that quickly, systematically, effectively, accurately, without taking up too much time and detracting from the general experience? I think that's how it's seen. And so it tends to slip. Yeah, there's um, some fuzziness around just what you mentioned. You're kind of moving from these different levels and perspectives. And I think most of us as educators, especially if we came from an, an education background, you know, we are used to doing evaluation and reflection, but f- from the perspective of our own practice, you know, so we're used to evaluating things like our kids engaged in enjoying the session and the the aim of that is to improve our practice for the next time around when we do that session you know we're going to uh, you know present instructions in a slightly different manner we're going to present in- information in a slightly different manner mm. to improve that aspect of our own practice so a lot of us can kind of get lost in in that view and it's difficult to then shift your view out to as you mentioned you know a, a project kind of perspective or to a funding perspective and a lot of bits get lost because I think as was mentioned in the first paper one of the main pieces of data that's gathered is the number of participants that comes through and you can see how that could be really driven by by funders who are keen to know how many kids are we reaching or um, members of the public are we engaging with to get a sense of the of the reach of that program that's an easy piece of information to gather but that's it doesn't give us information on how successful the program is. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because that was something that was going through my mind. I mean, you've highlighted how we often use the evaluation to self-evaluate. And that's so true to kind of say, oh, we need to hit this session in a different way in order to fill the gaps here and kind of make it make our practice better. And the other thing that we do fall back and rely on is that numerical data because it's easier to gather, you know, headcount. And yet neither of those, neither of those measures tells you whether or not a project is actually successful, which is yeah. what I thought was the interesting takeaway from the, um, the second paper about whether or not gauging enjoyment is actually measuring how much kids are taking away from a session. I thought it was quite interesting. So, you know, very often we will use that enjoyment. It's an easy thing for a practitioner to assess. We can think back on the session and think, okay, do the kids look like they're having a good time in that session? And are they taking part? Are they doing something? So that tells me that they're engaged with it. So it's it's easy for us to get that kind of information. But again, that doesn't necessarily, this this paper showed, hook up with is it achieving that success? So is it achieving even just the environmental literacy so that the knowledge, the content, it doesn't tell us necessarily that the kids are learning the content and it doesn't tell us whether or not we're achieving a change in attitudes or increasing connection with nature. No, absolutely. I mean, but you might say, well, you know, 270 kids came through the door today doesn't tell you anything just like you've already mentioned and also if you for example at the end of those 270 kids it's a seven form entry with um, another school with a true form entry come through and um, at the end you see a whole load of very happy kids get back onto their coach to drive off it might be that those kids have just gone through the shop of 
the visitor attraction or location where they've just come out of. And if you were to say to them before they got onto the bus, every single one, what do you remember about your trip today? They might not say, I remember smelling cut grass or I remember walking in mud or I remember seeing this bird. They might say, uh, I've just bought a lollipop from the shop and that's their immediate memory. So it's really it's really difficult to to gauge your evaluation needs to be at the right time as well and the presumptions of disengaged faces or you know where somebody's kind of turning away and looks like they're not listening that's a presumption on the deliverer's part and isn't necessarily indicative or true as to whether that child or or young person is truly engaged in nature and really enjoying themselves. There's an interesting point that's made in one of those papers that, you know, kids from certain backgrounds or depending on the social context of even just their class and their friend group, kids can develop coping mechanisms or mechanisms to hide what they're feeling, you know. So a, a kid may have developed really good coping mechanisms to make it look like they're they're doing okay, they're having a good time when when really they're not because of other circumstances within their life. But also in the same light, you can have kids who develop ways of hiding how much fun they're having and how engaged they are because of this worry of how they'll be perceived by their peer group. And that's something that we don't always consider um, when we're doing this kind of informal observation of student engagement and participation. Yeah. Absolutely. You remember when you're in the classroom and you're teaching in the classroom, you can't make the presumption that because a learner is not engaged with your eye contact, eye contact, eye contact, that they are not engaged, for example, because of a myriad of things, like you said, you know, background, upbringing, um, cultural reference, um, a, a need, um, you know, there's so many different things that are happening. I suppose that means, again, that when it comes to evaluating, not making presumptions, but actually carrying out systematic evaluation, like um, one of the papers, I think the last paper that you mentioned, that systematic evaluation is really important and not making presumptions and also kind of tracking learners through their journey of engagement, through their time with you, is also really important. Yeah, it was the, the paper by friends there in Stern and Powell and they what they looked at was um, the, the evaluators, they were observing the kids and sort of measuring and recording when they exhibited certain behaviors, you know, as that uh, an educator would normally take for engagement. So, you know, are they engaging in peer discussion? Are they taking part in the activity? That kind of thing. Um, But they also then conducted, uh, they gave the kids a survey at the end. So the kids self-reported how engaged they were with the session. And they found that, you know, the behaviors that they observed were not a good correlation with whether or not they actually, um, had those environmental literacy outcomes, whether they learned anything from the session. And it also wasn't correlated with their self-reported engagements, but it's when the kids self-reported that they felt engaged in the session that they also, they found a link there with 
those positive environmental literacy outcomes. So it's, again, it's not relying on an external observer because it's much more difficult to figure out what's going on internally in, in the participants. Yeah, they cited that self-reporting was a pretty effective way of getting more accurate evaluation coming through, didn't they? And there was mm-hmm. a mention of a learner who, having been in the outdoors, their shoe had mud on on it. They were asked questions about their experience and about what they had been learning and they came back with very accurate information whilst also distracted and flicking mud off their shoe and you might make presumption that oh they didn't like the mud they found that experience uncomfortable and unenjoyable and therefore they probably detached from the learning experience and not really absorbed information and yet that learner really had and another learner I can't remember if they were sat at the front, but they were really engaged and nodding and smiling the whole time. But when asked questions about whether they had actually learnt, they couldn't really respond to the questions. Yeah, and I'm reminded of any number of times where I've been, you know, especially over this past year, you know, I'm sitting in on a Zoom meeting, my eyes are open, I'm looking at the screen and I'm I'm listening and then I realize a couple minutes in, I have no idea what's going on. I've looked attentive, but my mind has wandered <laughs> and I've picked up nothing. Uh, I think I think everybody has been guilty of that this year. And, you know, also guilty of if you're trying to multitask, you're endeavoring to do this thing of looking engaged and smiling and nodding, but actually trying to reply to an email somewhere else at the same time. But we are taught, I think, from quite an early age that good listening looks like strong eye contact, nodding. But just because we're taught that, it doesn't mean that if we are gesturing like that, that it means that we have listened. I'm reminded all, always of many friends who knit and or crochet, and they will do that while watching TV. They know what's going on on the program, but they're just doing something else with their hands, or I will cook and listen to a podcast at the same time. And I can successfully cook while also absorbing the content of that. So it's, it's important to remember that, you know, multitasking is a thing that, that we can do. And for some of us, it's, it's helpful to have those two things going on at the same time, keeping your hands busy, just because a student, as you mentioned, is, you know, doing something with their hands doesn't necessarily mean they're not listening to you. So again, using that as a measure of how successful is an activity, are the kids, do they look really fidgety and distracted? That doesn't mean that you're not achieving the end goal of of the activity. You you could still be. I had a perhaps strange question for you. Do you think there's a bit too much emphasis on having fun in the environmental sector? (laughs) That's a really good question. Um, I think on the whole, the environmental sector, those that engage with people within the environmental sector, do tend to come from a place of wanting to have original ideas of how to get a spark within people and that light bulb moment of, yes, I love bees or whatever it is. And so I think people engaging other people in the environment sector do tend to bring that fun it tends to be quite a a kind of um, 
piece that comes with that passion for what they're doing and um, getting people engaged. But I think we can probably, at times, step over to the side of it being a bit forced. And I think when it's very natural is, I mean, you can see it when somebody's delivering and their absolute love for something is completely natural and they may be fairly deadpan in how they deliver, um, but somehow they get their audiences laughing, interacting, um, and really engaged either with each other, with the nature that's around them, or just themselves in kind of isolation. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, we, we we just need to check ourselves every so often that we're not, forcing it because we so want people to get connected that if we make it fun 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 people are going to get connected because that's not the only equation to getting people connected some people get connected well everybody gets connected in a variety of ways and so it's fine to have that more kind of low-key deadpan delivery as well as that kind of passion driven I think I'm a big believer in your delivery and your engagement is not about you because otherwise you get exhausted and that experience is very subjective to you as an individual and if that's going to be a re-engagement and people come back then people start to get reliant on you delivering the passion rather than the passion actually being their own passion so I think we all have to check ourselves and remember it's not about us it's actually about the connection to nature and that's what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. I think there's also something to be said about um, an educator being um, genuine to themselves in the way in which they deliver. So I've, I know that there are some instances where there are places that put a, they want participants to be having fun. They expect a certain style of presentation that again is, is again fun. So it's really high energy. It's really positive sounding all the time and uh, as you said it it can come across really forced i'm thinking that kind of super high energy like um cbbc presenter or like a youtuber kind of persona where it is really high energy and fun but as you said that's not the only way in which people can engage with things and i think that you can have very different presentation styles you can have very different experiences that do connect you with nature. So you can have quiet, contemplative moments. But um, another aspect that I was thinking of in, in asking this question is that assessing whether or not students had fun or participants had fun doing an activity, again, doesn't necessarily mean that the goals are being met. So they can be playing a really fun game, but that doesn't mean that they've actually developed a stronger connection with nature or they've developed more positive attitudes towards nature. They just might have reinforced the fact that they love to play games. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I'm thinking in particular of moments, moments which can really galvanize that sense of wanting to protect nature. And while they can be really positive, fun moments, but actually moments which can be especially powerful in galvanizing that wanting to do something can actually be really difficult, challenging, or painful moments. And that's something that within environmental education, I think often can get a bit left out. Mm. That's a really valid point. And I think one that I hadn't 
paid that much attention to. So that's a really valid point. If I reflect on, for example, my own personal moments of connecting to nature when I was really little, I remember my brother and sister being inside, doing other stuff. You know, when I was five, my brother was 12. So he was already kind of getting a bit too cool for school and inside listening to Dire Straits whilst I was outside making mud pies. And I would have really loved for him and my sister to be outside playing with me. and But also at the same time, you know, they they were inside and that's just what was going on. And I remember it being quite cold, you know, and sometimes sunny and but I absolutely loved the, the mud and I loved the whole process of making my mud pies outside and I had my own tree house and I'd get forget-me-nots and kind of put them into the mud pie. And that was a real connection to nature. It was, it was just sort of permanently outside. Um, I was and getting pretty muddy, but I I also, I suppose I'm reflecting on, I would have loved my sister and brother to be there because it wasn't all roses and just kind of this sort of perfect mud pie experience where the mud didn't, you know, the mud never got me dirty and everything was all sort of clean and sanitary and, you know, everybody was skipping around. It was also cold and wet and rainy and, you know, I'd get the mud all over my clothes and, and that's all part of it. So us being shy of creating an experience that isn't perfect and isn't manicured. I suppose I take from what you're saying, we need to ensure that we're providing real experiences rather than manicured experiences that have that false fun injected into them and and are manicured because then I would question are we actually connecting people to nature like you said you know some things well many things that happen in nature are absolutely brutal and so you know telling the very real and true story about what happens in our natural environment I think is also important we've created this um we're calling it a product and a show at Gloucester Wildlife Trust. It's the first time of us doing it. Um, and we are trialing it on the 4th of June. And then we're hoping to launch it over the summer. And we're calling it the Muck Show. Um, and it's all things muck. So we'll be talking about poo, poo, and more poo with kind of warning <laughs> this may contain traces of poo. Nice. And, yeah, <laughs> you know, we might kind of explore pine martin scats, we might um, explore owl pellets, we, you know, different things, but we might also talk about dog muck and, and, you know, what that does to our natural environment and so on. So, and and muck is, you know, poo is, is a commonality across all species um, and isn't always nice. But I suppose we are also using quite a few jokes and injecting that sense of fun in that. Um, mm-hmm. 
so a kind of combination of the not so nice kind of slimy smelly gory side of the natural environment well not gory but you know mucky side of the natural environment but also injecting that bit of fun to it yeah that sounds that sounds great i mean that's that's ever a topic that um it it has that like repulsion but also attraction attraction factor to kids right where they're like oh it's gross but i want to know more about it Yeah. yeah yeah Yeah. I think it is just providing that range of experiences. And then I think um, allowing educators or providing room for educators to be genuine in, in themselves, because kids really respond to, to that. You know, they, if you are honest with the kids, they're more likely to be honest to you. They'll be able to tell unless you're really, really good that this, this character that you're putting on, it is a character. It's not really you necessarily. And, yeah. And what our kids often want is they they want to know you. You know, they ask you personal questions about your own hobbies, the things you like, you dislike, your own opinions on things, because they want to get to know people, yeah. which I think is is very natural and human. Yeah. If we circle back around to this sort of emphasis on fun, is just because that that second paper really looks at one of the main ways in which we're evaluating success of an activity is whether or not kids have fun in the activity in yeah in that activity. And again, if I reflect back on some of my own experiences, the way in which I learned about things like the rainforest and deforestation, most of the rainforest lessons I have no memory of. What I do have a memory of is my teacher reading us the story, The Great Kapok Tree, which is just this really classic story about um, a logger going into the forest to cut down a tree, but he ends up sleeping underneath the tree because it's really hot in the afternoon and he gets visited by all these animals. And it's this really quiet, contemplative story. It's not a fun, exciting adventure romp through the rainforest. You know, it it really is just a man is sleeping under a tree and these animals come to him and tell him their stories. So it's really quiet, really contemplative. That's the bit of that whole unit that's really stuck with me. Then being hit with images of deforestation of the Amazon and other rainforest environments which is, you know, again, not a fun, happy romp. And yet that's something, that's an image that sticks with me. And so there's this connection with the natural world that's developed in a way which is not through these fun and games. So I think if you were to evaluate that program just based on the basis of looking out at the class, are they laughing? Are they smiling? Are they running around having fun? A program that took that approach would not succeed. But if you evaluated it based on whether or not the kids are connecting with nature and developing attitudes and values that will lead them to want to protect that environment, then then it would succeed. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I think there's this there can be a disconnect, not just in the fact that evaluating fun doesn't necessarily mean that you're evaluating whether they've learned anything, mm-hmm. but evaluating on that dimension of, of having fun, that's not the only way in which you can connect with the natural world and develop those attitudes. There are other ways to, to do that. Absolutely. I think um, a couple of things come to mind now. I think sometimes we have to remind ourselves that that connection to nature, as we all know, it comes in different shapes and forms for different people. And for some people, it's all about the facts and figures and being able to identify something and that you can see early on with some children you know they want to know the kind of precise description or how to identify something or 
to to get that reward of yes I got it right you know it's a so and so um and for others it's about just being in that space um and feeling you know it's much more emotive kind of emotional um connection rather than that kind of um knowledge securing so really different ways for us to access that nature connection we need to be mindful that i've just given two examples there's loads of different ways um for people to access nature and i think also going back to that fun element we also need to remind ourselves that i suppose well i'm a big believer in there's nothing as powerful no matter what your connection to nature root is there's nothing as powerful as as actually being out and in it and sometimes when we're planning these fun experiences we can end up creating resources and an experience that endeavors to give the experience of connection to nature either through a resource in a classroom or through a book or a worksheet you know and we and we are working really hard to give that experience when actually securing that connection to nature there's nothing as powerful as just being out in it and i'm a big believer that because your immediate doorstep might be concrete and you might only see a tree on you know opposite your house next to your neighbor's house and then there's sparse trees down your road or you might have the luxury of living right in the middle of a rural area and i'm talking about children young people and adults here it doesn't mean that because there's concrete around you there's absolutely no nature and so you're just going to be nature depleted and not be able to access or get that connection to nature and that forced fun can sometimes come from thinking that we can't connect people to nature in this area because there isn't nature there to connect people but i think we need to think a bit more creatively around that do, do you have any thoughts on how environmental educators can improve the ways in which they evaluate their programs my immediate thought and this is thinking to um the paper around nature connectedness or you know the different ways to assess nature connection is read about all of the different mechanisms you can use to assess that nature connection to evaluate the experience that you're providing try not to get overwhelmed and try to slice through it and find the one mechanism that you think is going to work for your learners the audiences you work with for you for the team you work with for the organization in which you sit or um, you as an individual if you're a, an individual provider um, or if you're a teacher try to sort of slice through and just find the one mechanism that you think is going to work keep it simple and keep it consistent and then use it and then if it doesn't work don't be afraid to shelve that and find another way to carry out that evaluation but really keep it simple if we don't keep it simple i do see that people don't do it it becomes a bit too overwhelming and i think we've got we have now got a wealth of information on ways to evaluate from 
nature relatedness to nature connectedness, the nature connectedness index, the nature connectedness scale. So there's lots of different resources out there and it's just slicing through and finding something simple that's going to work for you. Yeah, the practitioner's guide that, again, I'll I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but I think that's why it's so good is it takes Mm. all of these measures that are used in academic research and it really distills down what does this tool measure? How do you use it? And fortunately, most of them are quite short and quite simple to use. And literally, it's just Mm. add them up and then have an average, which is great. So super simple to use, nice and short. But I think it's also really important just to make sure that you're really clear on what is it that you actually want to measure. Because there are some organizations where, you know, their focus might be on learning concepts about the environment, you know, wanting to prepare kids to have the knowledge on on an issue. And if that's the case, then you need to measure that. Being clear on what it is that you want to measure Mm. and then using an appropriate tool that is actually going to to measure that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So for instance, if you you want participants to come out of a session feeling empowered to take action, Mm. then you need to measure that, measure willingness to take action, not what concepts did you learn. If you want participants to feel more connected to nature, then use a tool which measures that, you know, measures nature connectedness, Mm. not a survey on whether or not they had fun during a session. It's just using the right tool for, for the job. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then that's last few things, I, some thoughts where in our sector, if, if you're an education provider, we actually have some opportunities to have control groups that we might not consider. So there are many particularly smaller sites where they can't accommodate, for instance, a whole year group at a time. So they'll, they'll often split their visit into one or more days where you'll have one or two classes coming one day and then another one or two classes coming the next day to do Mm. essentially the same session. There's an opportunity there to give the students a survey that they do at school all at the same time. And the students can then do a survey at the end of uh, the students who haven't visited your site yet, give them a survey to do at the end of a science lesson and give the class uh, that comes to visit you a survey there and suddenly you have this control group you can compare the effectiveness of a normal science lesson that they would do at school on whether or not they're connected to nature with a group that has come to your site and see how their connectedness to nature has changed and you can compare the two groups which is quite interesting so it's there's some opportunities there and i think it just requires looking ahead at your booking and being a bit creative, identifying a, a receptive class that might be open to to contributing in that way, uh, and then reaching out to them. Yeah, I think that requires you to have a, a good relationship um, with that school and or with that teacher. And I think most people have that secured, a warm relationship with somebody. That's a really great way of actually assessing whether what you're doing is creating the impact that you're hoping it is. Yeah, I think most sites will have that, like, oh, this school comes every single year. Mm. You know, the teacher knows you, you know the teacher really well. And often if they do come to you really regularly, they they really like, you know, the, the experience that your organization offers. They like the work that your organization does. Mm. They might be open to participating. And um, yeah, fortunately, a lot of the survey tools that exist out there, a lot of them have been developed 
for use with kids. And so the, the wording is usually quite simple. There's usually not very many questions um, compared to like some of the more full-on surveys for adults. And so it's not as daunting as um, you might expect at yeah. first. Yeah. And I think it's also important to say that a piece of evaluation like that doesn't have to happen weekly. Like it's, and I say this to my team, it's fine if you're going to do in-depth evaluation that's not within the project, that's sat within your general programs, then it's okay to say, okay, we're going to pick this week, this week, this week, or these times through the year when we carry this out so that it's within our capacity, is going to inform our programs, but it doesn't start to drain on resources and become too much of a unwieldy thing that actually creates more of a problem than actually identifying the impact. So I think it's it's important to say, you know, this is achievable and it's achievable maybe four times a year to do that level of in-depth evaluation. Yeah, absolutely. Doing it even once is better than not having done it at all because even having that one piece, suddenly you've got much more solid information uh, about how your program works so that either you can change how your program works to improve the effectiveness of it, or you've got a really solid piece of of evidence to then go to funders to so you can increase your capacity to do this kind of thing. Or re- reach out to you know local universities, teachers, colleges as well, like teacher training programs. They might have, they might be wanting to look into this them, themselves and they might just be looking for partners to do this kind of work with. So you know, it, it might be as simple as asking if it, if there's a research institution around you that might want to do something, and then it's out of your, you don't have to do very much other than you know let them on the site, hook, connect them with a the teacher. So that there are lots of opportunities to to really do this kinds of in depth uh, evaluation. I think. Yeah, we didn't cover that so much, did we? But there are real opportunities to work with external evaluators where that is all they do. Um, And it doesn't have to be that you need to find huge amounts of funds to secure that external evaluator. I mean, sometimes if you've got lots of funds, you can secure an external evaluator for two, three years and produce a really phenomenal report that can evidence the impact you're creating, raise the profile of the organisation, you know, really raise um, the morale within a team, so on and so forth. But saying that, you don't have to secure thousands of pounds. You can, like you've said, Victor, you can turn to your local university or um, research body, find if they've got a pot of funding, if they'd be prepared to work with you, or if it's part of their endeavours anyway and they're prepared to assign a PhD student um, with minimal supervisor outputs and or whatever it is, there's different ways of getting external evaluators involved as well. Did you have any other final thoughts on um, any of these papers or on evaluation within um, environmental education? One final thing that I would say, evaluation, we often underestimate it, but evaluation, you know, top tip, don't make it an unwieldy beast. Um, Work with evaluation so that it works to your benefit to evidence what you're doing 
and try not to let it slip or go under the radar because there's nothing quite like both for those doing the job and working on getting people connected to nature but also for those that you're working with to get connected to nature or support their move towards pro-environmental behavior there's nothing quite like being able to say this succeeded or these were the gaps here and therefore we're going to do this to make it even better um and turning around to people and and saying you know through what we were doing for the last six months 80 percent of people have turned around and reported that they feel more connected to nature and therefore they're going to carry out X, Y and Z to help the environment. There's nothing like that feeling because you then turn around with your team or whoever you've been working with and say, we did it, we did it, we're, we're making a difference. And I think for a lot of people in our sector, Victor, and in what we do, um, and those that we work with, for example, teachers, they're in it because they want to make a difference. So kind of being able to evidence that, yeah, we're on the right track. I think there's something really powerful about that. Well, thank you very much for um, joining me today, Lorna. It's been really great having you back on the show. Um, hopefully we'll have you again uh, back again soon. Yes, please. And thanks so much, Victor, for inviting me back again onto the show. And it's been a pleasure, as always. And if you want to find out more about any of the papers and resources that we talked about on the show today, as always, full show notes are at our website, which is knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. Send me any questions or comments at knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com. And you can also reach out on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, uh, KN underscore podcast on Twitter, and look for Knowing Nature Pod on Instagram and Facebook. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>